Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. The Michael Richo podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 2nd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The age we retire at and qualify for the state pension is back on the agenda today. The state pension is valued by our society and it is the bedrock of the pension system in Ireland. It's extremely effective at preventing pensioners from falling into poverty. And we want to make sure that this remains the case uh, into the future. But a state pension should do more than protect a person from poverty. It should provide financial security whilst enabling the older person to continue to live a fulfilling and active life. That's Independent TD Dennis Nocton, the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Social Protection. His committee has been looking at recommendations from the Pensions Commission on increasing the pension age to 67 by 2031 and 68 by 2039. Pensions will cost the state significantly more to fund in years to come as more of us living in this country get older. Currently, 22% of us are 65 years of age or older. That number is set to more than double over the next 30 years, from 22% to 47%. Michael Taft is a researcher with the SIP2 Trade Union and a member of the Stop 67 Coalition campaign. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. On foot of uh, the publication of 13 recommendations that have come from uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Social Protection and one of them is to keep the retirement age at 66 which you've been campaigning for. Yes, and the Stop 67 campaign and SIP2 uh, uh, would welcome would welcome this recommendation, uh, in particular because the argument that that uh, given that everyone accepts pension expenditure is going to rise in the future. Uh, the problem with the argument regarding increasing the pension age is that there's very little evidence that it would make a significant contribution uh, towards uh, uh, you know reducing that cost. And the great thing about the uh, Iraqis Committee's recommendations is that it allows us to focus on the real drivers of pension sustainability, of which increasing the pension age is not one of them. Increasing the level of funding is one of them, though, because if you've got more people claiming more money, uh, you have to come up with more money. And I think they're suggesting raising that money through additional PRSI payments. 
Yes, everyone accepts that social insurance contributions uh, will have to increase. But there are other areas to uh, examine in terms of pension sustainability. Uh, one, a key area is economic growth. Uh, the Pension Commission uh, relied on Department of Finance and the Fiscal Council models, which showed that we are about to enter into a long-term period of ultra-low growth. Now, we know that growth will help generate revenue into the economy that can make that contribution make that contribution. So the Fiscal Council said that even a fractional increase, a fractional increase in growth over the long term would make a much more significant contribution uh, to uh, meeting the pension, uh, uh, meeting increased pension expenditure than would uh, uh, increasing the pension age. All right. What does this mean? Uh, Because I'm not sure if it means much. It's a decision that will have to be made by government and it has many challenges. Uh, There's another 12 recommendations in this and there's many recommendations then from the Pensions Commission. Uh, But in terms of the retirement age, uh, you've uh, two bodies here, if you like, the Pensions Commission and an Oireachtas Committee making recommendations that are at odds with each other. Uh, When will the government look at these recommendations and make its own decision? Well, apparently they have, uh, uh, the, the Department of Social Protection uh, is preparing up a uh, package of proposals for the cabinet to consider. But I would, I would think that that would, you know, take some time because it is, a, a, as you say, there's a, a 13 recommendations by the Oireachtas Committee and a lot more uh, from the Pension Commission. For instance, one recommendation that both bodies give, which again, SIP2 and the, um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Stop 67 campaign would welcome, is the removal of the mandatory requirement that people have to retire at the age of 65. Mm. So many people, and this is in the private sector, so many people are required by their uh, employment contract to retire at the age of 65. Both the bodies uh, recommend that this be removed and allow people to work uh, beyond that. That again would have uh, uh, you know a, a, you know fiscal benefit because you know if I'm working longer, uh, then I'm paying you know uh, tax mm. uh, uh, tax uh, which is of benefit uh, to the economy. So I suspect it will take some time. Yeah. However, I think the government will be mindful of this. In the last election. This was a sleeper issue that only came forward when the election campaign <laughs> yeah. uh, started. And I, I, you know, and I think you've, you've, you've discussed this. And since then, uh, there's been a Red Sea poll showing that that opposition to uh, uh, increasing the pension age is still there. About mm. 70% of people oppose increasing yeah. the pension po- Politicians were pretty much out of touch with uh, the public mood on it uh, and weren't aware of the depth of feeling in relation to it. In relation to what happens when you're 65, there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? Uh, one being, as you said, you won't be forced to retire uh, and the Oireachtas Committee is saying that that should be retrospective. Uh, so if your contract now says that you would retire at 65, well then that would be scrapped. That would no longer be obligatory. But it's also saying that if you work in manual work and you've been working for 40 years, that you should be able to retire at 65 if that's what you wish. 
Yes, this is about introducing flexibility into the pension system, a flexibility which exists in almost all other uh, EU countries' pension systems. So, again, we would uh, 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 welcome that. Those who are in uh, long, you know, those who have long contribution records, 40, 45 years. Let's take the example of someone who went to work uh, after leaving secondary education. They've been working since uh, the age of 18 uh, every year. Uh, if they have a full contribution record and they've reached the age of 65, they should have the option of being able to retire. On the other hand, people who want to continue to work should also have that option. So you will introduce flexibility uh, uh, into the system. And that's important, especially for those with long contribution records, but who are in ar what are called arduous occupations, you know, physically uh, demanding occupations. And it's not just construction workers. I mean, people think of, you know, workers on a mm -hmm. building site, and that is a, 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 an issue, certainly. But there are other occupations uh, which, uh, you know, entail arduous work. So in other words, to give people a chance to have a healthy life expectancy after they retire, uh, the, this flexibility allows people, uh, you know, to plan for the future and to maybe take, you know, to, to retire early or if they wish to continue working. Mm. Will we have any savings of our own when we retire, uh, given the increase in PRSI? Uh, because uh, I think the recommendation from uh, the State Pensions Commission suggested that if there wasn't a, a change uh, to either the retirement age uh, or, or to uh, how PRSI is uh, collected, uh, that there'd be a 13 billion euro deficit by 2050. That's a, a lot of money to make up if the money is to be made up in extra contributions by people when they are working. Yes, yeah, so the contributions were the the even according to the Commission on Pensions, there will be uh, other savings. There will be a savings going to the what is called the total contribution approach, uh, where you will receive uh, pensions as you know in proportion to the number of years you work. Unlike the current system, they're also arguing for an exchequer contribution. Uh, but you are correct; social insurance contributions will increase. But for instance, they say they talk about increasing. Uh, employee and employer uh, PRSI, like up to 0.2% 0, 0 by 2030. So, and if you stretch it out all the way through 2050, these are incremental changes that will be barely felt. Uh, the earlier that we start this process, the less, uh, uh, less onerous it is. Uh, and that is why we have to start addressing this issue now, rather than waiting, you know, until 20, into the 2030s mm. or the 2040s, whereby you would have to really increase contribution rates uh, to make up for the shortfall. Okay. I come back to the key thing. That shortfall of $13 billion, and you're correct to point that out, mm. that will not be a shortfall if we can generate higher levels of economic growth. And I'm not talking substantial, but even just fractional uh, uh, increase in economic growth. The Fiscal Council said a minor increase could actually reduce that shortfall by as much as 25%. Uh, up to 2050. And that's a significant contribution, more, by the way, than increasing the pension age. Okay, but uh, 47% of uh, the population is over 65. The workforce is going to shrink in line with that. So surely that will uh, add to those contributions that will be required. It will, but as I say, according to the Commission on Pensions' own scheme, 
these would be this would be a you know uh, almost homeopathic mm. level of increases every year out to uh, to 2050. Uh, but I would point out that people do kind of talk about well we have five people working for every one person retired that's going to be three people working for every person retired by 2050 and all that. Mm. But don't forget that is why growth is so important because uh, even though there will be only three they could be they will be far more productive they will produce more than what we have now so the key issues of productivity and growth will help us uh, meet this challenge it can't do it on its own mm. there's just no question about that okay but it can help meet that challenge but uh, it could be skewed again in the other direction because of life expectancy I think when uh, the pension was first made available to people in this country it was uh, to 70 years and older most people didn't live till they were 70 so it was kind of uh, irrelevant and didn't cost the state much now uh, it's not unusual for people to live till 80 uh, which brings up that cost uh, from uh, 66 years that's uh, 14 years of a pension but if that life expectancy increases let's say to 85 or or 90 uh, on average uh, well then you're talking about another significant increase in terms of funding it that's right, but I think that that, that, that that demographic increase is factored in to those projections. For instance, that 13 billion euro shortfall um, uh, that you mentioned. But there's something else that uh, uh, the Commission on Pension referred to but didn't comment on, and that is the fact that Right now, uh, we have about a life expectancy of 20 to 21 years on average once we hit the age of 65. Uh, so, in other words, uh, life expectancy up to about the age of 85. However, the World Health Organization and Europe, the EU Commission have an indicator called what's called a healthy life expectancy. In other words, of, your, uh, of the years that uh, uh, you will be in retirement, how many on average will be healthy years? And it's only about half. 10 years. So we can see the real social impact that if you increase the pension age by a year or two, you will be taking a significant proportion of people's healthy life expectancy out of the equation, which will have, uh, which will damage their kind of life opportunities in, in retirement. Mm. So we have to we can't just look at life expectancy. We have to look at people's healthy life expectancy to ask the question, would the gains in increasing the pension age outweigh the significant negative impact on people's living standards and life opportunities? Okay, how much weight would you give uh, to these recommendations? Uh, as we mentioned, uh, the government will be making its own decision. Uh, but would this leave you optimistic? because don't forget this is a uh, ruckus committee that is made up of uh, uh, TDs and senators from all parties mm. from all parties so I think that this is a significant contribution to the debate and I think the government uh, you know will have to listen to it because if you, if you put together that with what happened in the last general election continual polling showing opposition to this I think that they will be looking at the committee's recommendations to see okay pension age increase you know that's something we really don't want to go down the road of what are the other drivers that we can look at uh, uh, to, to, to meet uh, increased pension expenditure. Okay. It's interesting, Michael. Thanks uh, for talking yeah. us through it uh, and time will tell uh, what our fate is, but uh, the recommendations uh, from uh, that Oireachtas committee uh, saying that uh, we should keep the age at 66, people should be uh, allowed to work on past 65 or to retire at 65 uh, if uh, that's what they wish, if uh, they have a full contract 
contributions and there would be exemptions uh, I think as well uh, which we should have said for those who took out time for caring work uh, during uh, their working lifetime. Michael Taft, a researcher with uh, SIP2, part of uh, the Stop 67 coalition campaign. That campaign uh, continues and undoubtedly will uh, until such time uh, that a final decision has been made on this and uh, you're welcome to have your say. You know that they're listening if you'd like them to hear what it is that you want to do. Is it that you want to work till you're 100? <laughs> or is it that you want to retire at 65 or be on average at 66? Let us know. As always, our phone lines are open and you're welcome to text us or get in touch with us uh, through one of our social media pages for that matter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll be talking to the Secondary School Teachers Union ASTI later in the programme about uh, the Leaving Cert. As you know, it's uh, to be a traditional written exam that was made official yesterday by uh, the Minister for Education, uh, the government saying it's the right and fair decision. And uh, there was a debate on education in the Dáil last night. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, saying that she was happy with the reaction that she's received so far to that decision. The uh, reaction of students today um, has been there are various views on this um, various views of parents, various views of everybody around the table and I have met with all of those around the table whether it is parents or students or uh, teaching uh, unions or whether it is management bodies. I've met with all of them and I have listened and I have heard what they have had to say and specifically in relation to the four points that were raised by the students um, I have gone as far as I possibly can to ensure that they are presented with what they have asked me to do for them um, three of the, of, the, of the asks I have absolutely been in a position to deliver for them. And the fourth one, for reasons as I have already outlined in terms of an absence of data, we're not in a position to provide for um, accredited grades this year in a similar fashion to last year. And I think if you, if you heard the news this evening, you would recognise that many of the students have accepted that absence of data. It seems uh, to be the case. Uh, as I say, we'll be talking uh, to secondary school teachers later and uh, see what they think about what's planned for the Leaving Cert students this year. That's the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, speaking in the Dáil last night. Now, thanks to Margaret, who is in Dundalk and gave us a call this morning. Good to get your call as well, Margaret. She says, I don't think anyone should be forced to work over 66 years of age. I welcome the recommendation from the Rockdust Committee. I do believe, though, that if you want to work beyond 66, you should be permitted to do so. Not everyone is in the same position financially, and some people may also need to work until they're into their late 60s, and that should be their choice if that's what they wish to do. Thanks, Margaret. I think that's what the Oireachtas Committee is suggesting, and indeed, it's the recommendation that will go to the government. It's the government that will ultimately decide, and I suppose that's why we'd love to hear from you about it. Peter Indra has been in touch. Uh, an interesting call uh, from Peter because he's been working since he was 18 years of age but unfortunately he was never in a job that provided him with a pension and he wasn't paid well enough to take out a private one. He says he's looking forward to retiring in 12 years but he's worried about the financial implications of it. Thanks uh, for sharing that with us as well. Lorraine has been in touch with us too and she says that she was very sad when she had to retire from her job two years ago she lives on her own as her husband is dead and her children have flown the nest and work 
to her was an outlet where she could meet people. Uh, she believes that people should be given a choice about when to retire, but agrees that people shouldn't be forced to work after the age of 66 if uh, they don't want to do that. Thanks, Lorraine, for sharing those thoughts with us and indeed uh, your own experience. Uh, I think uh, retirement and the sudden uh, stop in activity can be very difficult uh, for people and it's one of the things that we're always advised is to prepare for retirement so that you can fill out your days uh, and occupy your mind apart from anything else but uh, thanks for sharing that with us uh, Lorraine as I say. If you were listening to us yesterday morning by the way you might have heard Piers Doherty of Sinn Féin on uh, the programme uh, and he was asking that uh, Simon Coveney would become would come before uh, the Oireachtas uh, to take questions about his role in what happened in Ivy House, the Department of Foreign Affairs, back in June of 2020. That's the 17th of June of 2020. And that's an important date to keep in mind because 13 days later, on the 30th of June, Pierce Doherty uh, was at Bobby Story's funeral. Uh, And of course, there's concern about what uh, the civil servants did for one minute in what some might say was a momentary lapse of reason, getting together uh, and celebrating Ireland winning a seat on the United Nations Security Council. A complete breach of COVID lines, completely wrong, uh, but a lapse, if you like. Uh, Pierce Doherty raised this in the doll yesterday with the Taoiseach. The conversation uh, between the two of them was not much different than the one that we had on the radio yesterday morning. Late last night, in an attempt which now characterises this government's approach to accountability, we had the internal report into the rule-breaking champagne party in the Department of Foreign Affairs given to the media. Now, this is an internal report that didn't even interview the man in charge. Why? Because the minister ensured that the terms of reference that he drafted ensured that he was outside the scope of the review. And this is typical, uh, Ken Corley, in my view, of a minister now that is out of touch, that has been at the helm for too long, and that his judgment has been called into question now more and more often. On the media this morning, Minister Coveney said that he is accountable to this House, to the doll, and it is here that he will answer questions. So can I ask the Tisha, will you move swiftly to ensure that Minister Coveney comes before this House this week to make a statement and to answer questions on this affair? Now, I said that... Uh debate or the discussion, if you like, between Piers Doherty and uh, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin wasn't that much different than the one we had on the radio yesterday morning. I think the points that were made on both sides were probably similar, uh, but I think the discussion in the doll yesterday was a lot more heated than the one we had on the radio yesterday. just want to say I'm satisfied with the investigation that has taken place and I will not be doing that. Um, and I also um, have said, while I was not in government at the time, I've been very clear since it was brought to my attention that it was wrong, it should not have happened, and those involved have apologised. Uh, but, Deputy Lord, I'm, I'm genuinely taken back by your tone and your attitude on this one. You are the deputy leader of a party um, that invited almost 2,000 members and supporters onto the streets of Belfast, and then to a political rally, essentially, in Milton Cemetery, at a time when the ordinary men and women that you speak about were limited. Were limited without interruption. Were, were limited. without... We're limited. without interruption. We're, we're, we're limited to 30 people at a funeral. Everybody else on the island was limited to Everybody with eyes in their heads could see what happened. And it's only about weeks after the event that you're raising such uh, a huge issue around. Um, To the best of my knowledge, 
Deputy Doherty, uh, your organisation, you or your organisation, has never admitted that you were wrong in what you did. But you lecture everybody else. There's one law for Sinn Féin, there's a different law for everybody else when it comes to this. Um, and I just, uh, will you let him respond, please? Sean O'Farrell, the Ciancorla, trying to bring some order to affairs to allow the Taoiseach an opportunity to respond. Well, how long are you going to get we'll him to respond? Turn on the respond He's talking about the funeral of well, somebody who well, passed away three I years ago. I don't like having to do that. I don't like having to no, do that. No, you, you actually take, you you actually take plenty of joy in that. You? Because don't you like don't care that there is a grieving family in the middle sorry, of this year. And your, your attempt to, sorry, your attempt to portray a champagne party with a funeral of a friend is disgraceful. It is, yes, it is. can you, can we all hold on a minute? I said last week that if this constant interruption continues, I will suspend the House. If you want me to suspend the House, now continue to interrupt. But I think we'll do the courteous thing and hear the Taoiseach out. He has three minutes in which to respond. It's a very provocative statement he made in fairness, Sorry. Can't Corler. Well, a very provocative, an outrageous statement, Can't Corler. What do you expect us to do? That is me. See, the only people who can call foul or criticise or say others have created a scandal are the Sinn Féin party. I, I'm telling the home truths. I don't like doing it. I have to do it. I find, I find what's going on in relation to DFA. It was a wrong thing to do. They're public servants who have given long service to this state. Right? They've admitted they're wrong and they've apologised for one minute of a breach of social guidance. It pales in comparison, it's insignificance when compared to what you organised. That's bottom line, that's what I'm saying. And that's all I have to say about it. I ain't revisiting it anymore, okay, Deputy Doherty. And please don't be so hypocritical in your Time is up. That should have been the end of it. But it wasn't. Point of order. Is the minister going to come in and answer questions? This is a house that keeps the minister accountable. Resume your seat. All right. Pierce Doherty just wasn't letting up. No, 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 no. no, 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 no There's no point of order in this matter. There is. No, there isn't. Well, you don't decide whether there's a point of order or not. I do. There's no point of order. Can we get authority? Is the minister I have no power. I have no power, no authority, understanding orders to direct the Taoiseach to give you any particular answer. Well, could I ask uh, the question want, again because he answered that, the question. change standing orders. Now, you, we, we, no, no, we've conducted. This is the, condu- this wait, the, excuse me. We have, done, the we have done our business uh, in accordance with the procedure set down. Important debate from our national parliament. Make of it what you will. Now, thanks uh, to Declan, who's in Navin and has been on the phone to us uh, this morning. Declan says, as the population is living longer, you'd wonder where the money will be found to fund pensions for so long for so many people. Well, that's what people have been wondering for some time, which is why these recommendations have been made uh, to increase uh, the pension age from 66 now to 67 to 68. uh, And that's over uh, the course of uh, many years uh, by 2039 people would be uh, retiring at 68. That was a recommendation from the Pensions Commission. The Oireachtas Committee has said no, it should stay at 66. Uh, And they're saying, uh, in uh, respect of your question, Declan, that the money should come from PRSI so that when you are working, you pay more uh, in PRSI uh, and that will allow you to retire earlier, sort of like a a savings 
saving scheme, if you will, but that you would be paying for it now and then retiring early and then get the benefit of it. Uh, that's uh, assuming that we all live past 66, uh, but that's another day's work. Thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme uh, this morning too. A text to us about that as well from David in Dunleer who says, Morning Michael, I'm working since I was 15 years of age. When I'm 65, I shall be retiring. Uh, I think I've paid my dues. Yeah, I think you probably have. That's 50 years working, isn't it? You know, and that's something that people don't take into account. Uh, but of course, you won't be entitled to any pension at 65, not as things stand. Uh, as things stand, you'd need to go on the dole, isn't it, for a year? But I think they're sort of turning a blind eye, an Irish solution to an Irish problem uh, with that as things stand. Uh, but you would be on the dole for a, a year or on. Uh, a pension which would pay the equivalent of the dole, if I remember correctly, uh, and you wouldn't be uh, asked to seek employment. Uh, David says, it's mismanagement of my money uh, by the government, especially the social welfare fund uh, that has uh, the pension funds so low. Thank you, David in Dundee, for sharing your thoughts with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, an independent uh, review of uh, the Termination of a Pregnancy Act is uh, to take place. It's going to look at uh, things uh, such as service providers like GPs, medical practitioners, medical colleges and the HSE and how abortion being made uh, legally in this country is working out and if there should be any adjustment to the legislation. Yesterday though we heard uh, some staggering figures under the Freedom of Information Act to News Talk that around 400 GPs uh, offer abortion services. That's out of a total of three and a half thousand GPs, just 400. Uh, it means one in nine are currently providing abortion services and it's less than 12% if you want a percentage figure on it. Alana Ryan is the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. A very good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it's shockingly low, is it? It is. It's very concerning that three years into the rollout of abortion services, we're seeing such poor coverage because this has real consequences for women and pregnant people. You know, ultimately, when there isn't a provider in their local community, they're having to travel significant distances to get access to that care. And if you think about needing to arrange childcare, if you're disabled, if you can't access a car and you have to use public transport, all of this really compounds the stress and the worry uh, that those women are experiencing at that time. So really we would have significant concerns that the provision still isn't up and running. Okay, so services are available based on your address. Yes. So what happens is if you um, are experiencing an unplanned pregnancy, you can get in touch with the HSE My Options service. It's a, it's a website and a, a telephone line and you provide your address and then uh, they will let you know who the, the closest provider is mm. to you. So if you're under nine weeks, that will be a GP and if you're over nine weeks, it will be a maternity hospital. Uh, do we know uh, how it breaks down? Because it, it sounds as though uh, it's a geographical lottery to some extent, but are there pockets of the country that aren't covered at all? Well, we know that Sligo and the Northwest are particularly bad. So currently there's no GP provider in Sligo. So women in that area are having to travel over county lines. Um, but to be honest, we're only getting this information through freedom of information requests. 
and through um, smaller pieces of research. You know, mm. it isn't being released um, as part of the public data on abortion services. So it's very hard to understand exactly what the geographical picture is. Yeah, um, forgive me for asking a silly question, but what's the GP's role in this? Is it, is it as simple as writing a prescription? So what the GP does is they will uh, provide advice and support Mm. and, you know, ensure that this is the right decision um, for that woman at that time. Uh, There is a three-day mandatory waiting period, which again, uh, you know, is contrary to the WHO's guidance on this. You know, the WHO recognises that it's a time-sensitive procedure Mm. and they say that mandatory waiting periods are actually contrary to best practice in reproductive health. Um, But you will have your first meeting to just discuss um, and say, you know, this is the procedure I would like. And then you wait three days and then you return to the GP and they will provide you with the pills and the instructions around how you can safely take them at home. Okay, so when you say a procedure, it's not that the doctor carries out a procedure on you. Uh, They provide you with pills uh, and I I gather they prescribe those tablets or, or, or do they actually give you the tablets? So they do, um, I think that they actually do give them in the GP surgeries or else um, you can come in and collect them if you're doing your consultation uh, over the phone or over video because of COVID restrictions. Okay, I'm just trying to understand what the resistance might be uh, by doctors to providing a service that is legally available in the country. Uh, Is it a conscientious objection, do you think, or is it an objection because they're afraid that the fallout uh, may be so great um, uh, because of anti-abortion campaigners? I think it's probably a mix of both. And I think also, you know, we really do need to recognise that this is a new service and GPs need support and training. Um, and to be really encouraged to take up what is an essential aspect of reproductive health care. But I do think that the ongoing anti-abortion activities, and, you know, we see them a lot outside Limerick Maternity Hospital, that sends a very uh, strong signal of deterrence to providers who would like to step up and provide the service. Because at the moment, um, there is no protection in law against that anti-choice activity. You know, uh, a local campaign group in Limerick, safe, uh, Together for Safety, has been uh, running a nationwide campaign to introduce safe access zones legislation, which was promised back in 2018 at the time of the vote. But the government hasn't actually uh, moved on this at all and is only beginning to, to actually introduce the legislation this year on account of all of their sustained campaign activities. Mm. Well, there are constitutional problems apparently to it as well. Well, there, that was actually corrected and it is now on the legislative programme for this spring. And I think, you know, ultimately having the assurance that you can provide a service and you can receive a service without being subject to harassment or abuse is really important for ensuring that we do get take-up rates and we, we improve the national coverage picture. Mm. Is there any other reason uh, that doctors uh, aren't providing this service? Uh, is there a risk, a medical risk? Is there a chance of medical negligence? Do they need training or is there anything like that? Or is there any great risk at taking these tablets uh, when you're uh, nine weeks pregnant or less? 
Well, no, I mean, this is a, a safe procedure and, you know, all the evidence suggests that it can be uh, delivered safely uh, as a, a medical abortion. If you're over nine weeks, it's a supervised medical abortion in a hospital. And if you need it in the case of fetal, fatal fetal anomalies after 12 weeks, it's most likely to be a surgical abortion. But it is completely safe. And, you know, other countries have provided this uh, service, you know, for, for many, many years. In England, it was in the 1960s that uh, abortion was was legalised. But I think, um, you know, a big feature of of this is needing to to use the review to understand the concerns that GPs and hospital-based medical practitioners have Mm. and really uh, work with them to ensure that we're putting in the resources and the support so that more can actually come on board. Because, you know, at the moment, it just isn't acceptable that women are having to travel such long distances to be able to access a time-sensitive medical procedure. Will the review be able to establish uh, these facts uh, because there is limited resource being applied to the review itself, a budget of €60,000? Well, you know, the review is substantial and we've been involved in the um, the research with service users, which is being run out of Trinity uh, by Dr. Catherine Conlin. And that is a really robust piece of research, which has been uh, speaking to the women who access the service since 2019 about how they experience care and, you know, uh, identifying problems in the pathways and areas that could be improved. The service providers research has just been commissioned and it's on a six month timeline. But really our critical concern is that these two pieces of research coupled with the information that comes through um, on the public consultation which is live at the moment and I would really encourage any of your listeners who have any experience, whether it's as a friend or a family support to someone who, who's access care, maybe they've access care themselves, maybe they're just concerned that they will need to access care and uh, the current provision doesn't seem to be uh, ensuring that everyone will be able to access without issue. I would really encourage that they do the public consultation, which is now live on uh, the Department of Health's website, and you can get a link to it on our own NWCI website as well. But all these three pieces need to be uh, fed into an independent review report, which is being led by um, a chair called Dr. Uh, Mario Shea. Uh, But our concern is the timelines. You know, if the review... Uh, suggests that there are problems arising from the legal and policy framework, we need to have assurance that these will be considered as part of the autumn legislative programme because we can't have a situation where we gather all this evidence where women share desperate stories of having to travel, of having difficulties in in access to care. We know that for um, women and pregnant people who have experienced fatal fetal anomalies, the travel to England continues. It's been really difficult to to be able to access mm. care because of the legal framework. Uh, you know, we can't have a situation where they all share their stories and then we don't see changes to the Act. So we're calling on the government to pledge to uh, have that report received and evaluated in September with a commitment to looking at the Act in the autumn schedule if changes are required. Yeah, no doubt. Um 
the uh, recommendations uh, will be controversial, as was uh, the debate uh, that fed into the legislation uh, being drawn up uh, and uh, the referendum uh, being carried uh, for that matter. But uh, just like uh, the debate before the referendum, I'm sure that... uh, Somebody is going to be very unhappy uh, whether the Act is amended one way or the other. Uh, you're already of the view that it should be uh, amended uh, to make abortion services more accessible, but we're going to hear calls on the other side uh, to restrict services. Well, I think this is about being led by the evidence and also situating Ireland's reproductive health service in the context of best practice, which the WHO has, has been very firm on. And currently, the gestational limit of 12 weeks is really causing barriers for women who realise that they're pregnant at a later stage because of having, you know, irregular periods. Um, You know, if you're disabled and you're having difficulty leaving your house, if you're experiencing domestic abuse or living in direct provision and it is harder to to access um, local services because of the problems in the coverage, many women will find themselves on the cusp of that 12 weeks and that is so difficult because under the law currently it's 12 weeks and zero days so if you realize that you're pregnant in week 11 you will find it very difficult to be able to to access an abortion at home all right it it will be contentious though alana i think uh, there's no doubt about that but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning alana ryan women's health coordinator with uh, the national women's council of ireland Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, you'll have heard yesterday how illegal parking fines have gone from €40 Euro to €80. Euro. It's a 100% crease. It's double what it used to be, and a lot of people are very happy about that, particularly when it comes to, to parking on footpaths and the obstacles that cars cause when they do that. Uh, but some 16% of motorists in a survey of 5,000 motorists have said that signage in their area is not clear. That's a survey that was carried out by AA Ireland. Let's speak to Paddy Common, who is a spokesperson for AA. And a very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks for joining us on the program is today. I take it some things are obvious. Uh, you shouldn't park on the footpath no matter where uh, you're looking to park, uh, but some things obviously not as obvious to people. Yeah, look, I, I guess what, you know, when, when people do park on footpaths and um, obviously there's a degree of ignorance there, but, you know, that what, what are who are being affected by this are generally vulnerable, you know, users. So, um, people with sight difficulties uh, and also wheelchair users, and this is, um, you know, these have been welcomed by these groups by NC, NCIB and um, uh, the, you know, the Irish Wheelchair Association, etc. So, you know, we would broadly welcome this because, you know, it obviously needs to be a greater incentive. It needs to hurt a little bit more in the pocket um, to, to to prevent this because even for a few minutes, this can cause these users great difficulty. But, but yeah, as you said in the introduction, we, you know, we did do a survey we have seen um, predictable enough results you know 16% said signage in the area needs to be improved and, and you know you can kind of see that I think you know we, we can probably all relate to the fact that we've parked in especially maybe an area that we don't know if we you know in Dublin city centre and you're looking around to see okay where can I park how long do I need to park for where do I um, you know where do I need to pay so, so there is generally a feeling that, that that does need to improve. You know, clamping is obviously always a contentious issue, mm-hmm. Michael. You know that, it's, and, and no one is really going to say that they um, feel that uh, 
they, they deserve to be clamped. But I suppose one thing that did come out was there's a, a greater desire for some sort of a, a sanctioned, I suppose, grace period. It, you know, we've looked in the last few days at other countries and, in, and say in the UK, there is, there is, you know, it's written in there, there might be a grace period of 10 or 15 minutes as such. Um, but, you know, for people who have paid the, the ticket, but there doesn't seem to be anything set in stone here. Right, I thought there was a 15-minute grace period. It depends, you mm, know, it, right. you, it mm. depends where you are. You know, mm. I, I live in Drogheda, and you, you might, you know, you might be okay for a few minutes and the, and the guys are a little bit, are quite mm. reasonable, but in Dublin it can be a very different story. Uh, I'm sure you know about uh, an age-old problem in Drogheda, seeing as how you live there, Paddy, uh, which is uh, parking on uh, the land belonging to the port. A, a lot of people, especially from outside of the town, come and park there, pay their parking ticket, think uh, that it's uh, similar to the rest of the town or might park there with their ticket from uh, another part of the town, but then realise that it's an hourly rate. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a crazy situation there because, you know, anyone, you, you would have to know and be from the town to know that. But then if you're coming and visiting and shopping and spending money in Drogheda, which we obviously would love people to do, um, then you're faced with a situation that you end up with a hefty fine because you think you've done the right thing. It just makes absolutely no sense. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure there's any grace period there either. Uh, the uh, parking wardens are very efficient, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and the keys. The one, the keys are very. That's efficient. it. I think. I think. I think uh, everybody in Drogheda is aware of that. Uh, but there's places uh, where you look at streets, and it's very clear. Uh, that we live in a, a country where roads were built uh, and they weren't designed for the amount of cars that there are on the road. And if people didn't park on the path, there'd be nowhere for them to park. And you'll see certain streets where everybody parks on one side of the street up on the footpath or else cars couldn't uh, travel up and down the street. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, look at look at car use. I grew up in William Street in Drada, when I used to, as a kid, I used to be able to play football in the middle of the street. And now, look at it. It's, it's you know, parked, it's heavily parked, on, on, in some cases on both sides, uh, illegally as well. But yeah, look, car use has, has increased dramatically. The capacity isn't there. And I suppose, in, especially in towns like our own, where you know uh, where it was never designed to have a vehicle in it, I think it needs to look at the at the planning, and you know it looks to see where you know do we start to need to look into pedestrianisation of areas. I know there's always that old debate about West Street as well. You know, would that transform um, areas of, of of the town and other towns? And I think it it, it does. It's long beyond being needed to look at is is, is pedestrianising those mm. areas, and and you know, and having having a little bit of a nicer environment for people to walk around, to shop, to drink coffee, etc. Mm. Uh, but should people uh, continue to park on the footpath if that's what they and their neighbours do, or uh, where no, will they park? Well, this is the thing, and, and you know, this is yeah. what's what's come out from the conversations we've had, and you know, we're having a, a current conversation with these groups about e-scooters at the moment because e-scooters is also will present huge uh, difficulty and are huge, causing huge difficulty for for the blind and and for wheelchair users. But no, you just have to consider how, you know what these users are faced with um, on a daily basis and to be coming across a, a car parked in a footpath um, already limiting what is a limited space for them then it's just not fair. Okay, What's the AA's view on e-scooters? Uh, is there any possible solution that would satisfy everybody? We're, we're, we're doing a lot of work on that at the moment and we're talking to a lot of the providers and, and for us we're looking to create almost a curriculum that we would I hope that e-scooter companies would provide before we, you know, pass them or uh, give them accreditation. But no, there is there's more work to be done on the legislation before it comes in. We would expect that to be 
in the first quarter of this year, you know, we were very surprised that there wasn't anything to say that you couldn't use them on footpaths, um, which seems crazy to us. We also uh, think that they shouldn't be provided to anyone who's under 16 or be able to be used by anyone under 16. Um, and we also think that the speed a limit for them needs to be revised currently at 25 we think that needs to be revised down to potentially 20 kilometers or less mm. um, and certainly as well that they're they're certainly the you know from talking to the uh, national council for the blind Irish wheelchair association they're very concerned about where they can be left as well and um, mm. you know people tend to put them back and fling them on the ground especially the shared ones right. and they just provide a huge hazard for these users and it's um, and uh, you know it's, it's, it's things that we wouldn't necessarily consider those of us who don't face those challenges Yeah I'm a bit confused about what you said about them uh, being able to use the footpaths I, I thought the footpaths were for pedestrian use only I, I mean it may not still, there may not be legislation that specifically bans bicycles from footpaths but you're not allowed to ride a bicycle on a footpath legally are you? No but, but they, no but they what what's happened is that in relation to the e-scooters when the legislation was drawn up they just haven't put in that clause yet Mm. now it it is expected that it will happen but um, these are things that you know need to be set in stone before um, these e-scooters are set free with abandon and obviously there was Mm. no requirement for tax and insurance which surprised some people as well and you know that would have put um, a little you know another layer of manners on the users um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what was said is that it was a legal or would be legal to supply one to person under 16, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use one to yeah. uh, under 16. And so some of them go very, very fast. Uh, they, they they seem to be lethal or have the potential to be lethal uh, for p- other people on footpaths, uh, for cars uh, who have to navigate roads with them, especially for cars who are navigating roads with e-scooters coming on the wrong side of the road. Uh, and indeed for the e-scooter riders, uh, many of them uh, who haven't got tax or insurance or anything like that, and of course are not wearing helmets uh, and are, are quite often uh, taking corners uh, blind uh, without a- any protection, it would seem. Yeah, you're right. And look, obviously we'd, we'd be encouraging people to wear the right safety kit. There, There is a potential if they're used right to provide a, a, another safe-ish enough and clean uh, form of transport. But what we would worry about is when these vehicles do suddenly become on on mass, that we're suddenly looking at our shoes because there's been a high-profile or a series of high-profile accidents, and, and hope and you know hopefully not worse. And then we're wondering why didn't we put these uh, legislation in place properly in the first place? Mm. John and Drogheda wants ramps and footpaths to stop them. It's a good idea. <laughs> All right. Uh, while you're with us, Paddy, uh, let's talk uh, about uh, the very. Uh, difficult situation uh, that some people especially if uh, they do any amount of mileage are, are finding in terms of uh, the cost of petrol and diesel it's very very expensive at the moment and it looks like it's only going to get a whole lot worse yeah michael it's gone it's gone really really bad i mean i i, I was speaking to research yesterday and i said you know even since last week when we had done another fuel survey we've seen another increase and we're now at another record you and i spoke back in November when we had reached a peak of fuel prices that has now been surpassed and by quite a degree so um, we did a, a we did a survey on Sunday just past and the average price for diesel across the country is 166.24 and petrol is now 175.64 and obviously and that's you know that's an average there is there are increases to that um, we are heading towards a situation where we will see 2 euro per litre for petrol and, and hopefully it's 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 far away but we, you know we're now seeing you know 
the price of our barrel of oil has gone to $90 per barrel. A lot of uh, predictions are that it's going to go towards $100 per barrel, not helped by the Ukraine-Russia situation where the market has got a little bit jumpy because of the potential for disruptions from supply from Russia. But really, this is people need to start getting mad as hell because this is 60% tax. And, you know, at what point are we as a nation going to say enough is enough? If this was in other countries, people would be out marching in the streets. Um, there is precedent in other countries. Hungary, for example, the government capped the price at one thirty per litre. And that hasn't created a massive increase in the use of petrol and diesel, which obviously the government don't want here, but they still want the revenue from the fuel. Um, so, you know, we're getting it to a stage where, you know, when is enough going to be enough for people? Okay, well, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would agree with the sentiment of all of that, Paddy. We leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme. Paddy Common of AA Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, uh, the standard of uh, child and adolescent mental health services in uh, this country has certainly come into the spotlight. A Sinn Féin motion uh, put to the doll last night called for supports for the children and families uh, affected by malpractice in South Kerry and also to broaden the review into what happened there. The Sinn Féin motion was not uh, objected to by the government uh, and it calls uh for an end to placing children into adult psychiatric facilities as well as 24-7 access to seven-day week outpatient uh, model for CAMS. Uh, let's speak uh, to Mark Ward, TD, uh, who brought this motion to the doll. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Your motion wasn't uh, objected to and the government uh, is committing uh, to compensating those who were affected in South Kerry. Yeah, so the, the the motion wasn't objected to, but it doesn't mean it's going to be supported. So the government have had this tactic over the last while of not opposing opposition motions because they don't want the public fallout. So I put it to the Minister last night that we cannot play party politics when it comes to children's mental health. We've seen from the fallout in South Kerry, where more than 200 children were put at significant risk of harm and resulted in significant harm of at least 46 children who were either prescribed too much medication, inappropriate medication, misdiagnosed. There's a whole range of reasons um, why these, these, these children were, were not looked after correctly. So, while the Minister and the Government are not opposing the motion last night, I'm calling on them now to, to put in place everything that's in that motion. All right. Which would be a lot of work uh, and work that has been neglected over a, a long period of time. And one of uh, the defects, uh, if you like, with CAMS uh, is gaining entry into uh, the service and getting seen, getting a first appointment. And that's one of the issues that you were raising. I think uh, you were talking about an individual uh, who became suicidal and attempted to take their own life uh, because uh, there wasn't uh, an appointment for them. So it's not only that there was an appointment for them, this person was, waiting, was, was, was sent to camps by a medical expert and they were put on a waiting list, they were on a waiting list for a number of years to see, this, uh, to see someone in camps and then when they eventually got an appointment after a number of years, they were deemed inappropriate for the service. Now, I want to know how camps deem someone inappropriate and what's the criteria that they set, what's the benchmark that they set and in the meantime, that, that, that person did, as you said, leave the service and then attempted to take their own life, was admitted to hospital, and then only then were they diagnosed, but they were put again, yet again, on another waiting list for another service. 
Okay. Uh, and could I just make this yeah. point as well? In 2020, there, has, there was 4,900 children who were deemed by medical experts to need the service of CAMS when they went to CAMS and when they eventually got an appointment of CAMS in, say, in 2020 they were deemed inappropriate. Mm. So that's for nearly 40,000 children just in 2020 alone. Yeah. Well, it's uh, not a, an unusual story and uh, one we hear many times over, they won't see anybody if uh, they have alcohol or drugs in their system, for example. Well, that could be one of the criteria. There's also uh, parents getting in touch with me that believe that CAMS hadn't seen them because their children are on, are on the autism spectrum. So people with autism do have mental health issues the same as anybody else. They might just need some more specialist treatment when they when they when they go looking for that. But that shouldn't be a barrier stopping those children from getting the care they need when they need it and where they need it. Okay, but uh, I'm sure those people who are working in mental health services are all very good people, uh, well intentioned, and trying to do their best for children who come before them. What's the problem? Do you think if what I've just said is correct? So absolutely. So I know I know a number of people that are working in CAMS, especially around my own area, and they are good people, they are doing the best that they have. They, they're understaffed. We, they're, they're, there's a lack of clinicians, there's a lack of psychiatrists, there's a lack of consultant psychiatrists, there's a lack of a multidisciplinary team that is needed to wrap around children to give them all the care that they need. So I mentioned last night in the call around other services that, that, that link in with mental health. So at the moment there's 71,000 children who are waiting for the likes of speech and language, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, psychology, all these things. Nine and a half thousand children who are waiting for primary care psychology. They're all interlinked. And if these services are not, are not in place, it's very, very difficult for, for CAMS to be able to operate and give the service that children deserve. And that's despite the increase in funding that's gone to the services. So this is, so at the moment, just on funding, so we're miles behind international best practice. So we, I know it was one point zero four billion that was spent that they're saying that was spent on, on mental health and I'm trying to find that and that's why we've been calling for the, the the reappointment of the national clinical director so we can have governance at the highest level. But that's only five point four percent of the overall health budget. Sponsor care calls for a minimum of ten percent of the overall health budget and international best practice calls for twelve to fourteen percent. So we are moved behind and we need to get up to international best practice as soon as possible. So 12 to 14% of the overall health budget you're saying should go on mental health services. Uh, let's hear uh, from the Minister Mary Butler and what she had to say to that point in the Dáil last night. And the deputies are right to say that the funding for HSE mental health services is approximately 5 to 5.5% of the budget for HSE health services. However, it must be acknowledged that this does not take into account mental health services and supports delivered or funded through other parts of the health service or by other departments or agencies, constituting a substantial sum of expenditure year on year. And I also note so many of the deputies opposite mentioned that we should be at 12%, but yet when you took your opportunity with your pre-budget submission, the increase was 113 million, which would bring you nowhere near 12%. It wouldn't even, it actually wouldn't even increase it. It actually wouldn't even increase it by 1%. So we might as well be, there's no point being disingenuous in relation to this. Mark Ward, uh, your response uh, to the Minister? So there's a couple of things there. So there is budgets within other departments specifically for mental health. So the, like, for example, the higher education has a budget for total level education and it's a, it's a separate budget and it comes from that department. We had a, a, a 10 million one-off funding that had to be spent by the end of the year this year for the minister announced. 
And out of that, she spent uh, almost two million on new cars for people at the HSE. So it goes to show where the priorities are. Just on the charge in relation to our alternative budget, last year the, the minister announced 24 million in additional funding from for new mental health services. We, in our alternative budget, which is fully researched, um, was 113 million. We said that we would get to the ten, the minimum launching care of 10% over a lifetime of a government, and we are committed to that. Mm. But she made the point that uh, you committed, uh, in the first instance, to less than 1%, uh, and you're talking about uh, in the lifetime of a, a government, which would be five years, getting to 10%, but you're critical of the government because it's not at 14%. So what I'm saying is, at the moment, we're at low base, we're at 5%, 5.4% to be exact, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to question the Minister on our maths, 5.4%. What we had last year was an additional spend of 113 million compared to the government's additional spend of 24 million. She's basing that 113 million that we said based on the government's health budget. We're basing it on our alternative health budget, which would bring it up in around the 7 to 8%. And over the lifetime of the government, we would get to the minimum of 10% as recommended by Slangicare. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD, Mark Ward, who's his party spokesperson on mental health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Israel must dismantle the apartheid system it presides over and start treating Palestinians as human beings with equal rights and dignity. Until it does, peace and security will remain a distant prospect for Israelis and Palestinians alike. This is according to a report from Amnesty International titled Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians' Cruel System of Domination and Crime Against Humanity. Amnesty says that the scale and seriousness of the violations documented in the report call for a drastic change in the international community's approach to the human rights crisis in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. The international response to apartheid must no longer be limited to bland condemnations and equivocating. Unless we tackle the root causes, Amnesty says Palestinians and Israelis will remain locked in the cycle of violence which has destroyed so many lives. This report has been welcomed by Independent Senator Frances Black and her colleagues in the Civil Engagement Group, Senators Eileen Flynn, Alice Mary Higgins and Lynn Rowan. Senator Black is on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thanks indeed for joining us. Amnesty is very clear in what it is saying about how Palestinians are treated as an inferior racial group and systematically deprived of their rights. It couldn't be more damning, could it? Absolutely, Michael, and thanks for having me on today to speak about this. I mean, obviously, I spoke to you on numerous occasions about this before, and I totally welcome the publication of Amnesty International's report on the situation in Israel and and, and occupied Palestinian territories. And, you know, I feel that this report has resolutely determined that Israel's institutionalised and systematic discrimination against Palestine and the Palestine people amounts to apartheid under international law. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. This report lays bare in great detail, yet again, what Palestinians have said for decades. They're, they're living under a system of apartheid. Uh, last year's Israel's biggest human rights organisation, Bethlehem, said the exact same thing. And I think, like, as a country, Ireland has stood for human rights 
And we played such a, an important role in opposing apartheid in South Africa in the 80s. I believe we have an obligation to act on this. And, and I really believe now that the government should urgently pass my the bill that I brought in back in 2018, which is the Occupied Territories Bill. And I know I've spoken to you mm. about that as well. It, it was supported by a large majority in both Dáil and the Shannon. And <clears throat> I suppose, excuse me, I'm, I'm a bit hoarse today. Sure. Look, mm. I just see criticism alone has, has 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 not worked, and it's no longer enough. Condemnation is not enough. The people of Palestine need the international community now to take action. Amnesty talks about the institutionalised and prolonged racist oppression of millions of people, cruel policies cruel Israeli policies of segregation, dispossession and exclusion across all territories under its control clearly amounted to apartheid. Israel seems to be saying amnesty is racist. Well, I'm sure they would say that, in fairness. <laughs> I mean, look, this is not just amnesty. This is Betzalem, which is an Israeli human rights organisation. This is Human Rights Watch. This is Al-Haq. This is human rights organise- organisations who are saying that this is an, an apartheid state all across the world now. This is an international. So, like, you know, and we have to, we have to look at what apartheid means. You know, it's a, it's a, what apartheid means is it's an international wrong and a crime against humanity. You know, and when a crime against humanity is committed, the international community has an obligation to hold the perpetrators to account. You know, and I think that by shedding more light on Israel's discriminatory system of domination of the Palestinian people, it will intensify efforts. My hope is that it will intensify efforts to dismantle the harmful policies and practices practices that prevent Palestinians from living with equal rights and dignity. Mm. And this can only be achieved when the international community holds the Israeli government and other complicit par- uh, parties accountable. So, like, we have to... Uh, now is the time. Now is the time, and uh, to, I believe, to bring in the Occupied Territories Bill. And, and you know, and I spoke to you about this before, it's a bill that seeks to end Irish trade in goods, services and natural resources that's produced in the illegal settlements and occupied territories. And that includes, you know, obviously, that's, that's in the West Bank, and it would yeah. basically ensure that no Irish commercial activity sustains, um, sustains the, the, the illegal settlements. So, you know, it's really important. The settlements, I have to stress this, and I can't stress enough, the settlements are totally illegal under international law, Mike. I mean, when you think about it, like the EU, the UN, the Irish government keep saying they're illegal, yet the settlements continue to be built on a daily basis. Nothing's been done. So there's no consequences for repeated breaches of international law. And I believe that there's clear hypocrisy there. How can we condemn the settlements as illegal, as theft of land and resources? but then buy the proceeds of the crime. So they're going in and they're taking people's land, they're taking people's farms, they're demolishing homes that doesn't belong to them. I mean, it's breaking international law and still nobody's doing anything about it. I remember when I was over visiting, I was over there in the West Bank, I was in Gaza, and and honestly, I mean, I don't know if anybody has ever visited there, but it stays with you forever the reality of the situation and the apartheid. They can't drive down their own roads. And I remember one group of young, an NGO, young women, who were just trying to survive and saying, why are the international community doing nothing to help us? And now we have, 
we have a responsibility now to make a difference. Mm. So I, I, I welcome this report wholeheartedly. And, and you know, you know, as I said to you, like the, the, the Irish in the EU position is, is saying that like uh, the, the, the settlements constitute an obstacle to peace, to peace and threaten to make a two state solution to the conflict impossible. And, and this is obvious when you look at the ground and the reality in the West. Do, do, do you care to answer your own question? Why is it that the international community has turned a blind eye and certainly has not acted? Uh, is it uh, because of uh, the importance of the Jewish vote in America? I, I mean, I would say definitely um, America has, obviously, there's a lot of support in the US uh, for Israel. Um, there's huge pressure. I mean, I even remember when, when I introduced this bill back in 2018, the pressure that came from America was unbelievable. So I do believe it plays a role in it for sure. I mean, look, the Irish government, like, as I said to you, they fully agree that the settlements are illegal. And yes, they, they, they won't support the bill. And what they say is that we cannot ban settlement goods on our own, you, you know, unilaterally, because EU law says trade rules must be the same in all 28 EU member states. So they've, they've relied on the advice of the Attorney General, but they won't publish that advice. So that's, I'd love to see that advice. I'd love to see what the Attorney General has said, because from our perspective, we have had some of the most eminent lawyers in the world mm. totally rejecting this. We have, you know, we presented three detailed legal opinions from Professor James Crawford. He's uh, at the International Court of Justice, Professor, Professor Takis Tridimus, who's at King's College in London, and Michael Lynn, he's a senior counsel in Ireland. And then, obviously, Senator Michael McDowell, who is himself a former attorney general, has, has written a, 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 an opinion piece for us, an advice piece. So, I mean, I think these opinions show that under the EU treaties, exemptions allow us to ban settlements goods. So, mm. anyway, look, I just feel I warmly welcome this. I think now we can act. We can act on this. And mm. I, my hope is that the Irish people will really get an understanding because Ireland led out on this mm. back in the 80s when it came to South Africa. Well, you're talking, about, you're talking about, well, about, about a fifth of uh, the population of Israel uh, who are being racially discriminated against by the authorities uh, and whatever uh, about the experts around the world and how Israel views them. I, I think uh, amnesty is always seen as an independent uh, player and it has said that uh, Israel is presiding over an institutionalised regime of oppression and domination uh, over a racial group and it's a serious human rights violation which is prohibited in public international law and it has many examples of how international law is being breached and surely that has to be taken uh, very very seriously by the international community that, that would be my hope it's apartheid and as I said Ireland led out we were the ones, it was two women in Dunn stores, mm. if you remember oh, Manning, yeah, very well. Mary Manning, mm. amazing women mm. who refused to handle oranges that came in from South Africa. Mm. And we can do the same with the Occupy Territories Bill. I mean, what it, would, it would send out a phenomenal message that mm. this, what they're doing is breaking the law. They're breaking the law on a daily basis yeah. and it's wrong and yeah. it's apartheid. And, and uh, we should uh, remember as well that Fianna Fáil were in support of your bill when they were in opposition. They were indeed, and you know, at the time, you know, as you know, the ta- the bill was tabled 
at an unusual time when the, when we had Ireland as a minority government and at that time it was led by Fianna Gael and you know we got support from the two opposition parties at the time well all opposition parties in fact not the two but the two who are now back in government which is Fianna Fáil and, and the Green Party and yeah, unfortunately then when we got um, a new when we when we had an election um, it, they didn't agree to bring it back in but I will say this to you and I have the quote here in front of me they did agree, uh, this is what they agree, that, um, they, they, they left it ambiguous in the programme for government. And what they did commit to, and I, I read out this quote to you yep. because I think it's very important, they, to work to ensure, now this is the government, our government, to work to ensure that all parties respect their obligations under international law, to oppose the maintenance and expansion of illegal settlements and to give leadership within the EU to oppose any annexation of territory in the West Bank. The government would regard any such moves as a breach of international law and would consider an appropriate response to them at both national and international levels. And that's why I think that's really important. The final part of that quote is free, or that, that piece of the programme for government, because... While there's no hard commitment on the Occupied Territories Bill, there is a commitment to national action. And this is where we are today. And the bill, mm. thankfully, still on the order paper. It remains where we left it at, at, at stage seven, passed out of ten. And our job is to keep the pressure, my job and, and, and okay. the people of Ireland, is to keep the pressure on the government. Mm. Uh, and if uh, the government is going to be a part of upholding international law, it's going to have to look at, at this report and how Amnesty is saying that there is the crime of humanity, of apartheid, acts set out in the Apartheid Convention and the Rome Statute and include unlawful killing, torture, forcible transfer and yeah. the denial of basic rights and freedoms. Absolutely. We'll be hearing a lot more, I think. Francis Black, thank Absolutely. you very much thank indeed. You. Thank you as always. Thank you very That's much. Independent Senator Francis Black. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, students have clarity, finally have clarity about what to expect for the Leaving Cert of 2022. Here's what Minister Norma Foley had to say in the Dáil last night about it. I think it's fair to say um, that, that students in the main have asked for clarity. They've asked for um, um, uh, clarity as regards Leaving Cert 2022. They've acknowledged that they have received that. Um, they've also asked for um, four things, actually, when I met with the students. The second thing being uh, that there would be uh, additional um, uh, changes made to the exam papers. Um, we have provided for that. They also raised the issue of uh, grade inflation uh, in terms of the class of 2022 competing with the class of 2021. And we have addressed that issue for them. And indeed, they did raise the issue of accredited grades. And again, I have uh, explained in relation to the issue of accredited grades, we're not in a position to offer accredited grades this year, as we'd offered in uh, previous years, as we have one in four students who do not have the data in relation to um, junior cycle. And that is important, that data, because it is the manner in which we have used, um, we have used to provide comparability um, or standardisation. Um, for students. Norma Foley, the Minister for Education. Let's speak to Eamon Dennehy, who's uh, the president of ASTI, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. Good morning to you, Eamon, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. God knows the class of 22 have been through a hellish couple of years, uh, and the Minister had a, a big task on her hands. Do you think she got it right? Well, we support uh, the arrangements that have been made. Uh, we were always concerned about uh, uh, accredited grades and uh, the whole idea of uh, maintaining standards and 
and you know the the, the uh, I suppose the objectivity of that particular uh, system as well. We we would all we would uh, have much uh, preferred uh, that the SEC uh, be in charge of this particular process. Okay, uh, and the decision on the accredited grades, the right one, you would uh, feel, uh, and is that because it wouldn't be fair on the one in four students uh, who didn't do their junior cert? There is. That's feeding into it, but there is also the need to, uh, I suppose, have an objective and transparent system and what I would call a level playing field. And indeed, it is very close to what we had uh, asked for uh, all along, which would be uh, along the lines of make sure that the uh, uh, exam papers would be modified in such a way that the students could uh, cope with them and could access them and could uh, deal with them effectively. And I think there has been a good bit done with regard to that, in fairness. OK, the Minister said the students wanted four things. Clarity was one of them, and it's clear now there won't be accredited grades. So what about the other two issues, uh, the changes uh, in uh, the exam papers and uh, the questions and what needs uh, to be responded to and grade inflation? Has uh, she got both of those issues correct uh, to offset any other concerns that students well, had about fairness? Well, I think that... Uh, and of course, we haven't seen the we'll be able to see better after the exam has happened. But I think the, 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 the intention certainly is to take full account of the disadvantages that these uh, students have suffered. And by the way, I think it is important to acknowledge that it was fantastic the way they dealt with the, the way our young people in schools, my own school and every other school, dealt with... Uh, these very, very difficult times. They rose to the challenge. They had to wear masks, they social distancing, they did online learning. And, you know, they, they really did, they were really put through the mill. But, of course, that was nobody's fault. It was a natural disaster, if you like. And we, we dealt with it as best we could. Mm. So, um, and so did the teachers. Yeah, by that's the way. a credit to we everybody, absolutely. To make yeah. sure that students were provided with a means of moving on with their lives once they finished second level school. Mm. Now, the the, uh, the changes or the improvements, even maybe some people might uh, say, about the papers should do a lot to allay uh, students' fears. And I think as well there was a commitment as well about uh, actually uh, making sure that the grades this year wouldn't uh, revert to where they were in a- a- a 2018 or 19. Uh, and I think that uh, as well will be a source of comfort to students. It should be an, an assurance and maybe improve their confidence with regard to facing these exams now in June. And it, it will be a very different type of exam to what students would have sat up to 2019. Is that uh, the kind of reform that you welcome as at least a first step? Well, I think that what it is is a response to extraordinary times. So the, 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 the and the papers are... Uh, Reflecting that, we uh, the STI would have um, uh, what we call sub, a subject representative uh, body uh, that uh, where uh, individual teachers become subject reps within the union, and they would have looked at uh, how ch- uh, papers should have been changed and would have looked at uh, what changes needed to be made in light of the of the disadvantages that students suffered, and would have made sub- submissions about those. And the submissions would have been very similar to what we are hearing about now, which is greater choice so that a student, you know, just because they haven't covered 100% of the course, 
don't have to panic when they see a question that they can't do. There is another question they can look at or another question, etc. And they'll have more time. And I think it'll be a more, uh, you know, it'll be a humane response to what we know was a difficult two years for these students. Okay, students have been very exercised, haven't they, in uh, their campaign uh, for a hybrid system and a a lot of energy has gone into all of this. Uh, The the debate uh, is over now uh, and it's time to get back to work. Uh, Do you fear that uh, the energy that went into um, this discussion about how and what form uh, the exam should take uh, may hinder students or is there enough time for them to get back and concentrate on what they need to do now? Well, the, the, the decision has been made significantly earlier than it was last year. Now, of course, it would have been better uh, if we didn't have, uh, uh, if this decision had been made for certain earlier on. But to be fair to all parties, nobody saw the, the, the what was it, the third or fourth wave, uh, the Amicron, uh, uh you know, virus coming on the scene. So to be fair to everybody, I think this is probably the best, solution we could manage under very difficult times and to to try to be fair to everybody because uh, uh, of course uh, students have been through a very difficult time but we do have to have an objective way of uh, of awarding uh, of assessing our students uh, as well and this important exam at the end of their second level uh, uh, schooling. Okay and maybe uh, you care to speak uh, to parents uh, before we wrap up because uh, Susan has been in touch uh, and uh, she thinks the whole thing is very unfair. Uh, she's uh, a daughter I think uh, in sixth year and one in fifth year as well uh, and uh, she says that it's been very unsettling for both of them uh, and that she's worried about the points uh, that they're going to get and that they won't get enough to get into college. Uh, what would you say to parents like Susan? Well what I would say is that uh, uh, I think I take a good bit of assurance from the idea that uh, there will be no uh, further grade inflation from l- last year and actually that the, the inflation from uh, 21 and 20 and 21 will be taken into account. So students won't be marked in the same way as they were in 18 and 19, in 2018 and 2019. And uh, their marks will be adjusted so that they are, you know, the, the, the cohort of 2022 will have the same performance, really, as the cohort of uh, 2021. And I think that that should be a huge comfort to people, really. It should, because uh, uh, it's not going to be a harder exam or a, or a more unfair exam in that sense. We have an assurance from the minister about that. Okay. And it is also going through you know, a very professionally and uh, expertly run system, and that is the State Examinations Commission, which can, you know, set standards and and uh, uh, set norms with regard to the exam. So mm. I'd have faith in that. I'd, yeah. I'd be hopeful that that will work well. Yeah, it's probably time for us all to get behind uh, our young people and encourage them uh, to and do... And indeed, yeah. I can mm-hmm. assure you, that's what our teachers will be doing now too. We all have clarity mm. now. We know yeah. what we have to do and we're going to get at it. Very good. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Eamon Dennehy, who's uh, the president of the ASTI, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. And that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.